0: save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an ac pro recharge kit today be a pro with ac pro in the heat of the minor league postseason it's time for the latest edition of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com, episode number 177 hello everyone i am tyler mon sam dykstra is in new york city howdy sam
1: Howdy, Tyler. Is this what we're doing now? We're doing howdy? We're doing
0: howdy. We're doing howdy this week. This <laughs> is how we uh, ease
1: into the offseason. We're switching yeah, exactly. things
0: up. We're, we're switching up the lingo for this week's episode of, uh, of the podcast. Episode 177, and uh, we've wrapped up some more leagues. Last night, the Northwest League, a bizarre finish to a championship for the Eugene Emeralds, their second Northwest League title in three years. They get a victory courtesy of a walk-off balk in the bottom of the ninth inning. Congratulations to the M's who come away with the title there. Uh, Tri-City Valley Cats, a victory in the New York Penn League as I believe it was a 28-year-old manager beating a 25-year-old manager in the, uh, the New York Penn League Championship Series with Tri-City and Hudson Valley. So congrats to the Valley Cats in that one. Uh, who else? Who else have we crowned so far since last week?
2: Um, Those might be the two, see.
0: the only two finals. Well, well what, technically what, not. The Carolina League is crowned a champion as well. That's what I was That's due to some weird extenuating circumstances with the hurricane looming on the East Coast. The Carolina League, which multiple times in seasons past has had to cancel its championship series and declare co-champions instead sort of decided they were going to go like Super Bowl style, and they had one game to determine the league champions And the Buies Creek Astros uh, capture a victory in their final game as the Buies Creek Astros before they move to Fayetteville, North Carolina next year. So congratulations to Buies Creek as well. That was supposed to be a best-of-five series and instead turned into a a one-game winner-take-all in the Carolina League.
1: Yeah, and and speaking of leagues that normally are affected by weather, the Florida State League actually got to play out its whole playoffs. Yeah. Uh, And Fort Myers won that one. They won the series 3-1. That was another best of five. Uh, A lot of names you might recognize on Fort Myers. Roster led by Alex Kirloff and number one overall pick. Voice Lewis. Uh, so congrats to the Miracle for finishing off strong there as well. Um, yeah, we're starting to wrap a lot of these up. Some of the bigger leagues, AA, AAA, those will be wrapped up uh, by the time we talk to you guys next week. Uh, so continue to check back to the site. We have a, a playoffs landing page to break all that down, but we'll get a, l- a little bit more into uh, what's stood out to us so far here in the, the next segment.
0: So crazy. So with that, we welcome you into this week's episode, the uh really the last one of the twenty eighteen minor league season. Not the last episode of 2018, but by next week pretty much everything will be wrapped up. In fact, we got an email yesterday that next Wednesday we're gonna have our off-season kickoff meeting uh to discuss our off-season content, which is insane to me. Uh, but thanks for tuning in and joining us as we uh preview the final few days of the 2018 postseason. Sam Dykstra, Tyler Mon. Uh, wherever you found us, thanks for joining us on this week's episode. You can catch us at MILB.com podcast. We are elsewhere. Elsewhere. We're on iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, uh, Stitcher app, uh, and all kinds of other things. And you can uh, give us a rating and a review and a subscription. And you can get in touch with the show podcast at milb.com with all of your questions, thoughts, comments, concerns. What have you? Three strikes. We tackled the three biggest issues in minor league baseball and strike one where we're getting started this week, the postseason uh, in the heat of it right now. And we've had a lot of crazy storylines, a lot of good games, um, a lot of really, really impressive individual performances so far in the 2018 postseason. Sam, what is your favorite moment of the minor league playoffs so far this year?
1: Well, I know we usually do this like call and response and you ask me the question and I answer and I tass- toss it back to you. But I'm going to toss it back to you first because oh, okay. you actually wrote the gamer of what I think is the most or like the craziest game, maybe of the season. Uh, I don't know. We're starting to put together some of our Milby categories and best game is always on there. And this game might be part of that. Uh, but Tyler, you wrote the gamer on this story that might be the craziest of the postseason, if not the full season uh, so far. So what can you tell us about Lakewood's Crazy, crazy comeback uh, over the weekend.
0: Yeah, game one of the South Atlantic League Championship Series, uh, the Lakewood Blue Claws looked like they were in a world of hurt. They had uh, really struggled um, against Lexington Legends pitching as uh, like the official dog of the show before the show podcast shakes to say hello to all of you. Um, it was a 5 nothing deficit for Lakewood going into the top of the ninth on the road at Lexington. Lakewood had gotten one hit in its first six innings against uh Jeffrey del rosario the 24th ranked prospect in the kansas city royal system um against the next two pitchers out of that staff's bullpen uh Janser lara number 27 and daniel duarte uh who pitched the seventh and eighth respectively still nothing just the one hit they had been dominated on the mound and then all of a sudden things went nuts in the ninth inning, uh, pinch hitter Josh Steven got things uh, open for the Blue Claws in that inning, had a leadoff single to center field. Jake Shiner followed with a single to right. And then the first of back-to-back-to-back home runs, Rodolfo Duran, Jalen Ortiz, and Nick Maton went out three straight blasts that turned that from a 5 nothing. what looked like a 5 nothing shutout win for Lexington, maybe a one-hit shutout win, Lexington into a 5-5 game in the ninth inning, and uh, Lakewood ended up rallying to win. They played the go-ahead run in the 11th inning on a Madison Stokes RBI single to take game one of the South Atlantic League Championship Series, and what's kind of funny is this is the... I want to say third game already that I've written in which you kind of get the feeling during the interview. And last night, uh, Scott Hennessy, the manager of the Tulsa drillers, a double a affiliate of the Los Angeles Dodgers who picked up a, a Texas league finals opening victory over the San Antonio missions. He outright said, I feel like we kind of stole this one and I've had, I think three or four game stories already so far in the playoffs where you sort of get that feeling in the interview of somebody being like, yeah, we're really happy to have this game. We probably shouldn't have had this game, which is kind of crazy. (laughs) But um, what a comeback from the Blue Claws who ended up getting game one. And, uh, you know, we talk about it so often when it comes to the postseason that these short series – Game one is pivotal. I mean, you talk the, the cliche in all sports is that game one is, is crucial no matter what, even if it's a seven-game series. But in three-game and five-game series, if you drop game one, you're not necessarily doomed, but you're almost doomed, especially in a three-game series. Now, these are best of five in the championship series for the most part um, at the full season levels, but uh, it's, uh, that one was nuts. And Lexington... I think shell-shocked would be a, a fairly easy description for that Lexington team because that wasn't even really much of a game. It was a 5 nothing game in which it wasn't like, oh, well, you know, Lakewood had its opportunities, just didn't execute. Lakewood didn't even really have opportunities in that game, and Lexington did bounce back to even the series in game two. Um, but uh, what a crazy one. That was nuts. So they're 1-1 after two games and uh, headed back to Lakewood for games three, four, and if necessary, five. Um, but, yeah, all kinds of fun in game one.
1: Yeah, and one thing we should point out, too, the fact that that did go to extra innings. Uh, the extra innings rules that everybody talked right. about so much during the season don't apply to the playoffs. Right. Uh, so Tyler about Which is talks something about, that
0: we discussed at the beginning of the year we figured would probably be the case, that it was not going to be something that would be uh, on the books in the postseason, and that's where we are. So, right. yeah, important to, to note that.
1: Right, so to say there was a walk-off single in the 11th isn't pointing out that they just drove off drove in the the guy who was at second base right. to automatically start the inning that was in a fully team man, manufactured run um nothing trying to cut you know cut back innings and all that kind of stuff here in the postseason pure baseball as many innings as, as they'll allow after nine uh my pick actually happened for the that same team that same Lakewood team uh in game two of the semis Lakewood swept Canapolis in a Two game, you know, it was a best of three, so they swept in two games uh, of the South Atlantic League semifinals. But if a playoff no hitter were to happen in the major leagues, we would never stop talking about it. Yeah, uh, you know, Roy Halladay, uh, Roy Halladay, Don Larson um you know Madison Baumgarner being as good as he has been if you dominate for nine innings you yeah. are going to be the stuff of legends pardon the pun this is a Lakewood blue claw not a Lexington legend <laughs> sorry I had to sink that in uh but this was the first playoff no hitter ever thrown in Lakewood history uh by Spencer Howard the Phillies numbered 18 prospect so this was not just some schlub doing this coming in uh, either getting sent down or promoted for you know my debut this is somebody who's been with the team all year Uh, it included one of my favorite quotes of the postseason so far Uh, I love when guys are fully you know forthcoming and honest and whatever and normally when you talk to guys about no hitters it's when did you find out it was happening Uh, Spencer Howard said oh anybody who says that that and then I'll put my own quotes here or uh, parentheses they don't know a no hitter is going on is a complete liar (laughs) I think the first time I realized it was going out in the seventh, I was like, wow, just let them put the ball in play. Um, So he knew what was going on. I mean, it's a playoff atmosphere. You realize you haven't given up any hits. There's a little extra pressure there. wasn't do or die by any means for Lakewood. If they had lost, it would have gone to a game three. Not a huge deal. Um, But he threw 103 pitches over his nine innings, only one walk, nine strikeouts, completely dominant throughout. Uh, This is a guy who had a very solid – South Atlantic League season, 3.78 ERA, 147 strikeouts. Uh, His fastball and his slider both get above average grades, uh, but he has been knocked for his control in the past, especially in the pros. So to see him do that last Friday, uh, not only throw a no-hitter, keep them off balance, but do so by only walking one batter, coming very close to an actual perfect game, speaking of Don Larson, uh, was really, really neat. So that was cool to follow. Uh, We'll be, I'm sure, talking about that again when awards time comes to the site uh, later this offseason. And just to go back, because this just happened. It's still fresh in my mind, but still really, really cool. The idea of a balk-off. How do we feel about that? Is that yeah. like – is that a big ce- – like Eugene, by all means, should have celebrated. You won a championship. What was really funny was they had the lowest record in the Northwest League this year, but they got the wild card with a 17-21 and 21 record in the second half. Um, they called themselves the Bad News M's just because they really – you said stealing one. They really had no right to be there yeah. in the playoffs. Just the way things worked out,
0: I know, I know they, they had, had, had a losing Posts record.
1: weird. Right, it is weird. And then to walk off with a balk against Spokane, it's just, like, they went wild, they went crazy, whatever how should we feel? Should we feel that that's cool or should we just kind of shrug it off and be like that's just the lower minors and things like that are going to happen?
0: You know, I think it's uh, unfortunate I think would be... uh, That's the best way of putting it probably. It's um, you know, again, only a five game series and granted Eugene had already grabbed the first two, but Spokane's up two to one um, going into the the last inning in that game and um, it was, the entire series was to be played in Eugene so it's not as though, oh, Spokane's up two to and now they got a chance to go back home, get a chance to even the series. That's not the case uh, for this series, but um it was just such a strange finish. And uh though the one thing that I will say I'm okay with about it was it was a very obvious balk. Emmanuel Classe was the one uh to commit it and basically fell off of the rubber as he was going into his delivery. Um we saw a uh, play earlier this year, wasn't it this year in which a, a player was basically blown off the mound by a wind gust and that resulted in a balk? I think that was this year. It might um, have been. It might have been like, have been like May. Yeah, yeah, like April or May of this season. Um, And so at least it wasn't something where... It was one of those debatable moments. Did he come to a pause? Did he not come to long enough of a pause in his delivery before he started coming home to the plate? It wasn't anything like that. Like, it was a very obvious bot call. And so that, I guess, makes it somewhat more stomachable, if you will. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's a guy who had a very, very good season. Uh, was a midseason all-star this year in the Northwest League. Combined in 22 appearances for Spokane this year. All of them out of the bullpen. A one-on-one record, a 0.64 ERA for Manuel Classe, who in the postseason really was not that good? Uh, put up a thirteen point five zero ERA, and gave up two runs on two hits in an inning in the third yesterday to end up losing that game. So you know, it's I think if it was a three game series, I would feel way worse about it um, for Spokane but five game series you're already down 2-0 after the first two games um, and you didn't get the job done in game three it sucks but you know those are kind of the breaks if it's one of those things where on a coin flip you go into the ninth you end up losing game two in which you could have even the series in a best of three then I think I would have felt a little bit more uh, more discouraged by it but uh, credit to Eugene to be able to you know squeak your way into the playoffs and come away with the league championship.
1: Yeah, and one thing we should also note with Classe was he walked the batter before the balk yeah. uh, with the bases loaded. So he tied the game by issuing a bases loaded walk, then has the balk. So, again, not to pile on him, uh, it's just unfortunate. He did so many things well this year uh, in the Northwest League. Uh, to end on that note is rough. But is it going to be something that he's going to really, really worry about hope going into the offseason? I don't think so. I can't imagine he's going to be – practicing his delivery to make sure a random balk doesn't happen yeah. in the same way as like if he threw a fastball middle middle for a series ending grand slam then you're just like okay i need to work on my command yeah uh, this is just a freak thing and, and you know that's the minor leagues freak things happen so many games happening uh, all at once something weird's bound to happen whether it's a playoff no hitter or a playoff balk off uh or a crazy ninth inning comeback so another week of this for sure and i'm sure we'll be talking about some more crazy performances next week
0: that bottom of the ninth inning for eugene single fly out single ground into a force play that put runners at the corners stolen base hit by pitch bases loaded walk balk to win it for eugene <laughs> like alrighty, righty it's the <laughs> <laughs> the the season comes to a close. What a strange one, but congratulations to the Bad News M's on their second league title in three years. Strike two this week, Sam. Not nearly as upbeat of a story uh, as the minor league postseason. Unfortunately, Michael Kopech, MLB.com's number 13 overall prospect, has a torn ulnar collateral ligament in his pitching elbow. The White Sox prospect who made his major league debut this year uh, and just made his way up to the major leagues is now on the shelf for a year with Tommy John surgery. Um, He is expected to be out for all of 2019. This is such a bummer because the way that Michael Kopech had dominated um, through his uh, time in the white Sox organization um finally gets that call uh four starts up the major league level you start seeing all of these guys who we've been waiting on for what feels like forever with the white Sox, but really has only been two years basically um graduating and making their way up to the major leagues and starting that new era on the south side in chicago uh and then all of a sudden now you see one of the most dynamic arms in minor league baseball and in the future in major league baseball uh on the shelf for a year this is a bummer
1: yeah, no, it really was, and like you said, somebody who had already gotten a taste in the majors, somebody who everybody got legitimately excited about. Uh, not just because he has you know triple digit heat, but had fixed so many things as the season went on. His control had really improved with Triple A Charlotte. Um, all the things you wanted to see Michael Kopech do by the end of the year, he was doing. Um, you know, he led the minor leagues in strikeouts when he got the call up. He probably would have led it at the end of the season had he not been called up. But, you know, to the to the White Sox credit, they saw that he was ready, that he, you know, had done enough. Uh, they weren't making the excuses with him that they did with Eloy Jimenez. Uh, and then for this to happen, you know, after four major league starts is just really, really rough. Um you know, this isn't the first time this has happened this year. This has been kind of the year of the pitching injury. Uh, unfortunately, A.J. Puck has been knocked out for the year with, with Tommy John surgery. Ben Honeywell has been knocked out for the year with Tommy John surgery. Alex Reyes was on the comeback trail and is still technically a prospect after he had uh, surgery this year. Uh, Mike Soroka, you know, he climbed in the majors as well. He's been dealing with the shoulder issue all year. Uh, Hunter Green has been announced to have a UCL injury. Doesn't sound like he's going to get Tommy John, at least right now. Um, But... You know they're they're gonna try the rehab process with him and and uh see where that takes the reds top pitching prospect uh these things are just piling on don't forget uh, a
0: guy who started the year technically as the top prospect in the baseball show hey otani now also in need of tommy john surgery no longer a prospect but still somebody who's very much in that conversation of these young arms derailed because of torn ucls
1: yeah no exactly uh and even the guys who are healthy i mean look at that you look at Mackenzie Gore uh, had a lot of injury issues this year. Kind of not freak things, but like he had a blister issue, fingernail issue. Hazel uh, Suzzardo. This is his first really fully healthy season after he went to- underwent Tommy John surgery in his uh, draft year. Sixto Sanchez was limited in terms of innings this year. Will, luckily, we'll get to see him in the uh, Arizona Fall League. Um, but you know, when you look at the game, the state of the game right now, and the young talent. Uh, There's a reason why, you know, the first six prospects right now on MLB.com's top 100 rankings are position players. And number seven is Forrest Whitley, um, you know, who was suspended for a good long while, has had his own injury problems this year. Uh, It's going to be really tough to evaluate pitching prospects now and say, you know, how much better they can be than a position player. Just because even if they are healthy, you know, Kopech showed no signs, I would say, over the year of, you know, this is a guy who's definitely going to need Tommy John surgery, at least in terms of workload and that kind of stuff. Uh, and then even this happens. Uh, you know, he's definitely one of the most in shape pitchers in the minors. Um, seemed like he was doing all the right things. Lucas Giolito even said, this is one of the hardest workers I've ever seen. Uh, do not doubt him, uh, you know, coming back in 2020. But you know, when we start to... You know sit down and evaluate how organizations are strong and all that kind of stuff um you know it, it it's a pitcher is going to have to clear such a higher bar going forward uh just because not necessarily tommy john surgery but just injuries like this stack up so many so much more with the young pitchers than they do with position players um and you know it's unfortunate that we're going to have to talk about Michael Kopech as a prospect still in 2020. Um, that's what really gets to me. The fact that going into next spring, we're going to have to still talk about what what do we think of Alex Reyes as a pitching prospect. Uh, I would have loved to have seen a full year of Brent Honeywell this year and A.J. Puck. No doubt in my mind, both of those guys would have been in the majors. Uh, and with the way the A's are playing right now, you know, Puck would have been a big part of their rotation. I have no doubt about that uh, Sean just underwent shoulder surgery too, as well. So, you know, these things kind of pile up. Um, it's unfortunate, uh, but you know, best of luck to Michael Kopech going forward in his recovery. If he undergoes surgery last we heard, he was going to undergo a second opinion. Don't doubt him for that or don't blame him for doing that. Obviously, if you, if you can avoid elbow surgery, you want to do that. Um, but by all means, we're, we're probably going to have to still talk about it as prospects, you know, a year and a half from now.
0: And what's kind of weird, too, um, I think so often you have this conception in your head of Tommy John surgery. A guy throws a pitch and feels something in his elbow and walks off the mound, and that's that. Uh, Michael Kopech told MLB.com, quote, If you're looking for a specific pitcher day, I couldn't tell you. It's been gradual. I just thought it was a little bit of discomfort. I thought it was something I could throw through. I just kind of assumed after every start it was soreness, and then some starts I thought it might be a little more sore than others. I just didn't ever put it in the category of pain. I put it in the category of soreness. I wouldn't be able to pinpoint a time. So it's something that happened over a stretch of time for Michael Kopeck and uh, really unfortunate. But hopefully we get to see him back on a mound sooner and, and healthier rather than later. Um, so we wish him all the best. Uh, strike three this week, Sam. The offseason is here for the vast majority of minor league baseball teams and uh, for athletes as well. Getting in the offseason, dudes uh, do some interesting things over the offseason. Who has the most interesting offseason ahead in your mind for 2018 and 2019?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, the reason I, I bring this up is because I, I did last week's tool shed last Friday's tool shed on uh, Nate Pearson in the Blue Jay system. Um, I did a tool shed with him, you know, beginning of the year because I thought he was kind of getting lost in the shuffle a little bit by Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Bo Bichette, um, obviously some very exciting pitching er, uh, position player prospects in that Toronto system. And he was their top pitching prospect. He was their first-round pick last year. Lots to look for or lots to look toward uh, for him coming into 2018. And then in a May start, you know, it was his debut with Dunedin. He had some injury issues in April, got his start pushed back to first week of May. And then has a freak injury where a line, line drive comes right back at him, breaks his forearm. Uh, you know, not much you can do about that. It's not like he could have gotten out of the way of, you know, a screamer in that way. Uh, but really, unfortunate. breaks his forearm, his pitching forearm, his right forearm. Uh, and he even talked to me about that saying, you know, if it was my left one, okay, maybe I'm back in four, six weeks. All I need to do is is get it in a place where it feels okay and healthy. Right one, he needed four to six weeks just to get out of the cast. Then he needed to work the muscles back up around that. Then he needs to get back on a pitching program. Uh, he didn't throw his first bullpen until August. And that, like I said, this injury happened in May. Um, so he, the reason I want to talk to him is last week he appeared in an exhibition game for Lansing. Uh, that was just the available place they could get him. Uh, it was an ex- exhibition game in Lansing against Michigan State, so he got to face college bats again. Uh, by all means, it went well. Two winnings pitched, four strikeouts. Uh, According to Lansing broadcaster Jesse Goldberg Strassler, he hit 102 miles an hour on the radar gun, which if you've ever seen Pearson pitch, he is a power pitcher. Uh, That's what he relies on. He also has a pretty good slider that is going to allow him to get a lot of whiffs. Uh, He's going to instructs, so his offseason is already kind of beginning. Uh, And then the Blue Jays are going to decide what to do with them after that. Definitely seems like winter ball is an option. He explicitly said he wants to go to the fall league. Uh, That's obviously an option that's open to him uh, just because the Blue Jays have announced who's going there. Late roster additions happen all the time, Um, but they want to see him be healthy first through instructs. They want to see what his stuff is like before throwing him into a league that is going to have a lot of top 100 prospects. And for one, a guy who only has one start, uh, at a full season level, not including that exhibition game. Uh, you want to make sure he's fully ready to go before you throw him in with the Sharks in the AFL. Uh, so th- it by all means, and, and this is the way I started the piece and the way I ended the piece actually, was that it feels like his season is beginning now. Uh, he's going to throw in instructs that's basically like spring training for him. Wherever he goes in winter ball, whether it's the AFL, whether it's somewhere like Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, and Mexico, that's when his season really begins. That's when he can really start to throw the innings that he did not get this summer uh and you know the, obviously there's a lot of big names to follow in the afl we've we've touched on that in previous episodes um, but for somebody to a needs to show that they're healthy and b needs to show that their stuff has come back fully and that he's not just a you know triple digit thrower um you know there's a lot on the line here coming up in the next couple of weeks for nate pearson and i'll be following that story closely i'd say anybody you're looking for whether it's the afl whether it's winter ball Or just, you know, getting back on track this offseason, Tyler?
0: I just get excited for the AFL because I feel like we have those stories every year where there are guys who you're not necessarily looking at as prospects. I remember Jared Miller a couple years ago with the D-backs organization who was definitely a prospect but I don't know was somebody had really put himself uh, right at the front of the line as far as relief pitching talent went and had an elite campaign in the AFL um, and is somebody whose name you got to know there and that is always the coolest thing about the Arizona Fall League to me. Guys who go down and just put themselves up against the best the best of minor league baseball and show yeah you got to take me seriously too that's always the coolest thing about the offseason to me i get excited about that with the afl
1: no that's perfectly fair and uh yeah we'll be doing our usual afl drafts just to tease that every year that's one of my favorite episodes every year so we'll do something like that uh either going into the afl or in the middle of the afl uh just to prove you know just because the season's over just because next week you know the postseason's coming to an end there's lots of baseball still to talk about and lots of uh baseball to actually be played it's not just talking about it and talking about what do you guys need to do there's still a game going on somewhere almost right up until you know christmas and going into spring training even
0: yeah it's uh as we say year after year baseball never stops if you ever want to find it you can find it. And we got uh, off-season ball starting in just a matter of weeks, which is insane. I guess you can't really call it off-season ball if it's an actual season that's starting. But, uh, you know, winter ball, shall we say, unless you're in Australia and then it's the summer. Whatever. Neither here nor there. <laughs> that's three strikes for this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast, episode 177. Coming up, we're going to head to the Houston Astros organization and a brand new league champion, Seth Beer, with the Bowie's Creek Astros, who walked off with a championship in the one-game Carolina League Championship Series, taking away the Cup last night in a victory. The final game in Bowie's Creek for the Astros affiliate. Seth Beer joins the show next.
1: We're joined this week on the Minor League Baseball Podcast the Show before the show by number seven. Uh, Astros prospect 2018 first round pick Seth Beer, currently on his way home uh, with a Carolina League title under his belt. Uh, Seth, Seth, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, how are you doing? How, how's the the travel back to Georgia going so far?
2: Uh, you know, it's going good. Uh, can't complain. Uh, you know, I get to go home after, uh, you know, a win and, um, you know, being part of a, a team that won a title. So, you know, it's not too bad. Yeah, and it,
1: as our listeners know that we just explained this in the last segment, the Carolina League finals, the Mills Cup finals, got shortened from a best-of-five series to a best-of-one series yesterday. Uh, your Bowie's Creek team going up against Potomac. Uh, winner takes all. You guys won the title. Uh, when did you guys find out it was going to be a, a winner-take-all, essentially a Game 7 type scenario? Uh, and what was the reaction like in the in the locker room?
2: Um, well, it was probably about forty-five minutes before game time. Honestly, uh, it was a, a pretty, uh, a pretty fast decision. Um, but you know, uh, it, it kind of went from earlier in the day, going, you know, are we going to play because there was rain, you know, coming in, or you know, is this whole thing going to get canceled? To you know, we got to you know focus in and uh, get ready to go because you know this, this, this game means the whole thing. So for us, uh, it was kind of a mix of emotions. But, uh, you know, I was proud of the guys and how, you know, we all came out and just, you know, competed. Um, you know, everybody at that point, obviously, is running on fumes, you know, throughout from out the year. And, uh, you know, it was just, uh, it was pretty cool to just, uh, you know, celebrate with the team. And, uh, you know, just a long season and, uh, you know, the end on a win is always a good note.
1: Yeah, for sure. And you speak of a long season. Obviously, it's a very long season for you. You you played this spring at Clemson. You, you get drafted. You get moved to, to three different levels. Uh, what did yesterday's win mean for you personally, something to carry here into your first offseason?
2: Um, you know, I, I think it, it, it means a lot. You know, it means a lot to me to be a part of an organization that uh, um, has had success and, uh, you know, is driven by uh, – getting their players better and we're not necessarily trying to win, but we're trying to compete and teach and stuff. And the results of, of our players learning throughout the system um, comes with wins. And, and that that's kind of what I got um, with the, the vibes of, you know, how they run the minor league farm system throughout each level in the Astros organization. It's all about development. And if you're developing players, then you're going to have very competitive teams. So for me, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's crazy to think that that uh, I got to this point and, you know, I, I got to play with such a high-caliber team against high-caliber players and from other teams. And uh, I'm just really happy and blessed to, um, to be able to experience that.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting you note that the Astros don't necessarily try to help you guys or try to make you guys win, make that the clear thing. It's all all about development, and I'm sure that's true of many organizations, but this year is kind of a unique one for the Astros in that all five of their affiliates, three of which you played for, like you said, Tri-City, Quad Cities, now Buies Creek, uh, all made their resec- respective postseasons. Uh, you know, this is the only organization you've known so far, but what do you think goes into that? I mean, how does that winning mentality play itself out if, if they're not uh, you know, making it the number one goal on each team?
2: Um, you know, I, I think it just comes with, um, you know, how they, they treat their players throughout the organization, how they, uh, they're they really driven to develop them. Um, whatever round they were drafted in, whatever wherever they come from, you know, it's all about development. And, uh, you know, uh, I think that's a, a huge part of um, our organization is uh, being able to develop our players. And, uh, you know, I think that... Uh, um, I don't know what makes it so special, and uh, you know, but um, they, they they're just determined to make everybody throughout the organization better, and uh, and I think that's what makes us so competitive, and uh, and you know, it's, it's enjoyable to be able to celebrate, you know, um, with not just you know the Bowie's Creek, but the organization, um, you know, going into the top season.
1: Yeah, and speaking of development, uh, all told, between those three levels, including the playoffs, you ended up playing 71 games this season in the minor leagues. That's more than you played this spring at Clemson. I think that was 63. Uh, how do you feel like you developed a- as a professional hitter now, you know, beginning from when you signed or when you got drafted in June to where you are as a hitter, as a baseball player, as a prospect uh, now going into this
2: season. Um, I, you know, I think, uh, for me, this was a learning experience and that's what, you know, the, uh, assistant GM told me, you know, in Houston. And that's what, you know, all of the, all of uh, the coaches and my managers throughout the three levels have said is that, uh, you know, um, your first half season, I guess you'd say after you've been drafted is all about learning and, um, just, you know, soaking in everything, getting your feet wet with, with you know, how minor league baseball works and professional baseball, uh, for that matter. And, uh, for me, it, it, you know, in the past couple months, it feels like I've I've learned so much uh, when it comes to uh, developing not just my swing and, uh, and my approach, but also, uh, you know, being able to continue uh, my work with, you know, defense and, uh, you know, something I really need to work on. And, you know, I'm not afraid to tell people that. And, uh, and the fact that I can get out there every day and, and they always have, you know, drills or... Or you know, hit me fungos at first base, or hit me fly balls in the outfield, and uh, help me, you know, further those goals I have for myself has uh, been pretty cool. But um, you know, I, I feel like the end of my last college game to now, it's almost a, a night and day uh, change, just when it comes to um, how I feel going into the offseason.
1: Yeah, and I want to touch on that defense aspect in a second, but uh, in terms of you know just i guess the whole thing again whether it was hitting whether it was fielding or uh base running anything what was the most eye-opening moment this season that really i guess opened your eyes to okay this is the pro game now i'm not you know in the ncaa anymore uh this is going to be a different beast when did that eye-opening moment come for you if it did at all oh
2: uh i think right when you get into the pro ball um You know, every arm that they run out there, you know, when you're going up to bat, they're there for a reason. They were drafted or they were signed for a reason. And uh, um, I I think that's a cool thing. You know, that's what you want to do. You want to compete against the best. And, uh, you know, I think probably the eye-opening moment is when I got to high A and, uh, you know, everybody that running out there, the pitch is throwing, you know, 94, 95 or, or, or harder. And if they throw, like, you know, 90-92, then they're spotting up their pitches. They know exactly what they're doing. And I, I think that was the experience uh, that that you need to learn, though, is, um, you know, the higher you get, the, the better these players are. And, uh, and sometimes they're going to get you out. Sometimes it's not your fault. Sometimes you just got to tip your cap. And, uh, you know, because they did their job, just like you're trying to do yours. And I think that's the understanding of, of um, um, how to compete, you know, when things aren't going your way, I think is you know it's one of those things you have to learn, and you know I think that was you know one of those things I
1: had to learn. Yeah, and uh, outside of that, um, how do you feel like you needed to adjust afterwards, or how do you feel like your your preparation this uh, winter is going to adjust accordingly to you know be able to catch up to those ninety-four, ninety-five mile an hour fastballs on on a, any given night because um, you know finishing out the year at Pooey's Creek or Fayetteville or Corpus Christi is certainly within your reach to begin next year you're gonna see more of that velocity um you know how did that little taste of high a affect your preparation or your uh, you know your approach at the plate
2: um you know I, I think uh it, it, it for the most part cleaned it up it, it, it taught me I need to basically stick to the basics and stay within my zone and uh um you know guys are gonna you know, throw balls on on the corners of the plate. Um, you know, every once in a while you might get a, a a miss where you know you get something over the heart of the plate. But you have to still be patient, and that's something that uh, that you know is going to be a big key for me um, going to the off season is to be able to uh, make sure when uh, you know pitchers miss miss their spot that you have to be able to execute, and uh, because you know they don't miss often, not not in uh, these levels. So. Uh, for me, that that's something I'm gonna I'm gonna work on is uh, just uh, continually uh, just uh, clean my swing up to the point where I can mm-hmm. be consistent, and uh, that you know that's what I'm looking for, and uh, that's what I'm I'm looking to do this offseason.
1: Gotcha. So I feel like we should explain to people who don't have your stats their stats uh, right in front of them. Uh, it was a very solid first season for you. you hit 304, 12 homers in 68 seven games across three levels, like we talked about uh moving on to that defense aspect though um you know that was one of the question marks about you coming into the draft is where were you going to play long term uh the astros played you both corner outfield spots and first base uh what have they told you about your future defensive home and uh you know how much do you plan to keep moving or is that just part of uh your kind of profile now is that you're going to be a first baseman slash corner outfielder uh, as a pro
2: um, uh, that's, you know, kind of been the uh, the talk that, you know, it's going to be corner outfield and first base. So for me, uh, you know, getting the chance to, to go down to instruct and be able to work on those, you know, three positions, uh, I, I just want to do whatever I can for the organization uh, to be able to be a little bit versatile when it came to, comes to positioning. And, uh, you know, that's something I need to work on is, you know, is going out there every day and, and working on all three of those positions. Um, to just uh, um, be able to have the ability to move around if need be. So for me, uh, you know, those the corner outfields and first base is, is I think where it's
1: going to be. Gotcha. And uh, so let's let's get into your college career a little bit. What made you into a first round pick? Uh, you, you came on the scene in 2016 with Clemson and had one of the best freshman seasons in, in recent memory. You were a three time All American. I think you were the only the second Clemson player ever to to be an all-american three times uh as a freshman you hit 369 with 18 homers that first year uh at what point did it feel like this was going to be you know kind of special for you that not only that first season but the second season third season um that you were going to take to college especially well
2: um for me it was uh it was just trying to adapt uh, as quick as i can and uh you know, coming into the year, my freshman year, I I uh, graduated high school early and enrolled in college. So, you know, I needed to get as prepared and ready as I could because um, I I knew it was the challenge that was ahead for me. So, for me, uh, you know, I almost over prepared. Um, and uh, when it came to that, uh, you know, getting in the best shape I could get into, and uh, and uh, you know, seeing a live arm. Um, thankfully, you know, I played on such a good travel team throughout high school that you know I was. Good arms on a daily basis but um
1: for me uh um it, it was it was just uh just having to try to adapt as quick as I could yeah and how high of a ceiling did you feel like you had even that first year knowing you know you had two more years before you could enter the draft this isn't basketball where you know some kid has a crazy freshman year and everybody knows he's off to the NBA you have that really good freshman year now you still have to wait two years until 2018 to get drafted um you know what? What was it like waiting out those two years to see how high you could go? And um, you know, when did you feel like a first-round pick?
2: Um, you know, I I think uh, you know, I think you always have to think that. I, I think if you ask any any guy that that goes high, you have to uh, even if it's not true, you gotta you gotta believe that you know that that you can be drafted there. And uh, for me, that was something. Uh, internally i thought every day that you know when i got up in the morning and i went to go train or you know i went home for the winter break and i you know i got up at you know eight eight o'clock in the morning and drove you know 45 minutes away to you know go train at this place that i i worked out at you know those are the things that that drove me and uh you know i i think you have to have that that drive and and stuff and uh you know i ever since i was a little kid that's been a dream of mine to you know get drafted in the first round so for me, that's always been there as a drive, and uh, and it's something I always internally thought I could do. And uh, so it was pretty, it was pretty special uh, to get that call from
1: Houston. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the uh, the decision you made to graduate a semester early from high school, enroll in college, uh, and that took you out of the draft process. Essentially, uh, you know, players who especially hit the ground running like you did, but. Uh, who eventually become first-round picks, at least they get some sniffs in the draft uh, coming out of high school. What went into that decision uh, to immediately move to Clemson to, to start your college career a little early and uh, kind of bypass the draft completely?
2: Um, you know, for me, uh, uh I, when I went to, uh, to Clemson and uh, I visited, I said, you know, this is where I want to go. This is where I want to play. Um, I kind of always wanted to play uh, – Um, you know, at Clemson, you know, when I committed and, uh, for me, I felt like it was another stepping stone I needed to take to, uh, be successful, um, in my ultimate goal of making the big league, uh, you know, a big league team someday. So for me, I I felt like, uh, you know, it, it would prepare me better than if I was to, uh, go out of high school and everybody's different. And, uh, but for me personally, I felt like, uh, that was the, the, um, path I needed to take, um to get to my ultimate goal of one day hopefully playing in the big leagues.
1: Yeah, so what do you feel like you got out of the Clemson experience that you wouldn't have had you been at, playing at, you know, Class A, Class A advanced, uh, or even short season ball in the pros between 2016 and, and this last spring?
2: Um, I think it taught me a lot. It, it taught me, uh, you know, how to grow up and become a man uh, and live on my own and, uh, um, you know, balance school and baseball you know, it's a very difficult thing. Uh, you know, I always, anytime I meet, a, a an athlete, you know, from, from any type of college, you know, there's a certain respect I have for him because, you know, I know how hard that is to balance, you know, both, you know, um, academics and also your sport. So I think, uh, you know, that, that makes you, uh, mature and, you know, that was something I, I wanted to do is mature. And then also, uh, you know after my freshman year uh is how to deal with expectations how to deal with failure um things like that um I feel like prepared me a lot better when it came to pro ball and uh when it comes to expectations and you know learning how to deal with failure uh on a little bit smaller scale you know with college and uh and I feel like that helped me uh transfer to professional baseball a little bit smoother
1: yeah and speaking of dealing with you know a little bit of adversity uh you got a a chance to play for the collegiate national team with team usa uh maybe when didn't go as well as you may have hoped 19 games played only one homer you hit 232 um what did that experience do for you you know you're playing with a wood bat i think at that point um you know it's a slightly different environment you're around different guys but what what did that do and how did that prepare you for pro ball
2: Um, I I think the the biggest thing is, uh, um, I think it was just the experience of being able to, you know, wear the nation's colors on your chest. Um, I think that alone, honestly, was like one of the most special things about that. And uh, for me, uh, it was another experience where, you know, you're playing with the best of the best on your team. Um, And you're playing with, you know, top players across the country, all all there for uh, the same reason. And uh, I think that you know it teaches you, you know, how to be um, a little bit more competitive uh, when it comes to um, you know what what your goals are. And uh, there was a certain drive after that after that uh, um, after that after that summer um, to go home and uh, go back to Clemson and you know get into the best shape I could possibly get into leading up to my junior year. And uh, um, I, I just think you know anytime you get you get the chance to. Uh, you know, can talk to and, uh, you know, get views on, you know, certain things that make guys tick, uh, that make them successful. I always think that, that you know, that's something uh, that I want to use to my advantage. And, uh, you know, guys, you know, bounce, you know, stuff off each other all the time. And I think that's a pretty cool uh, uh, way to do it.
1: Yeah, and, and coming off that experience and, and like we said, a, a very strong spring uh, this past year as a junior uh, and add in the defensive questions and all that, uh, it, it was a question mark for you where you were going to end up in the draft. Everybody thought you were a potential first-round talent but could go anywhere. You eventually go number 28 to the Astros. Uh, what was that draft night experience like for you as somebody who could have gone almost anywhere that first night?
2: Uh, you know, it was stressful, obviously. Uh, you know, I was just uh, I was thankful. Uh, you know, I, I think the coolest part about that day was, was you know, we came off a pretty tough loss against a very talented uh, Vanderbilt team. And for me, I think the coolest part was, you know, after such a tough loss and after such, you know, a hard day, you know, my team was there to support me on, on, you know, probably one of the biggest nights of my life. And to see all those guys smiling through the door after such a tough loss, you know, where they could just go, you know, hey, I'm going to head home you know, I'm going to get ready for summer ball or, you know, I need a break or, you know, they were all there to support me. And, uh, you know, those guys are all your brothers and you guys working every day together. So that was really special to have them all there, um, to kind of share the experience. And, uh, for me, uh, you know, it was a big deal. My family was there and, you know, cause with, you know, they've, they've all been down, down the road that I've been going for years. And, you know, this is the, uh, the ultimate goal. So, um, you know when I was sitting there I, you know it was stressful obviously uh, but it, it was exciting because you know I was surrounded by all the people that made it so special for me so for me uh, you know that made it a really fun night and to hear uh, the commissioner say my name uh something I've uh, dreamt about for years ever since I was a 6th grader uh, watching the draft on the MLB network you know as a kid going you know one day I want the commissioner to say my name so to actually hear those um, my name come out of his mouth was uh, it was a a memory I'll I'll cherish for the
1: rest of my life. All right, so we're, we're, we'll end with these two. Um, first off, as we mentioned, last night's game was played with Bowie's Creek. You guys end up with a with a championship at home. Uh, that's actually going to be the last game in which the Astros Class A advanced affiliate is in Bowie's Creek, playing at Campbell University. Uh, What was that experience like at Bowie's Creek playing in a a college stadium again uh, for you? You know, you think you're going to the pros, you're playing in a college park. Uh, What was just the Bowie's Creek experience like?
2: Um, You know, it it was a a different experience. It was something uh, I I think, in my opinion, prepares you for the future, you know. Um, You know, our locker room was a little farther from the field, and, uh, you know, we had to learn to adapt, and I think, you know, that's what – that's what minor league ball is all about. And, you know, I'm very, uh, thankful that, uh, you know, Campbell gave us the opportunity to come to their field and let us use it, especially, you know, right now during this time of the year, uh, where I know from college that, you know, guys are trying to get ready with ball ball and all that stuff. So it was pretty cool that, uh, and especially, you know, that they were, you know, pretty, uh, opening when it came to letting us, uh, compete there. And, uh, I think, uh, you know, it was a cool, fun experience and, uh, to be able to uh, have a home that, you know, that we were, you know, open that they were open to us to let us uh, use. And uh, for me, you know, that's, not, that's something that's pretty special and that, you know, it's a lot of credit uh, to Campbell for, you know, letting us to be able to play there and
1: compete there. All right. So we'll end on this. Um, I'm sure people listening at home are probably yelling into their devices, wishing me to ask this question. And okay. I'm sure you've been asked it before, but now that you're, No longer an amateur, you're officially a pro player. You can get endorsements up the wazoo. Uh, Your last name is obviously Beer. Has anybody reached out yet to get the official Seth Beer endorsement for their alcohol-related product? And also the second part of this question, what is the best or worst uh, joke you've heard about your name uh, since you got known a little bit around the Internet or around opposing parks in the ACC, uh, anything like that?
2: Um... (laughs) yeah no one's reached out to me yet and, uh yeah you know but we'll point i, I out, yeah. always joke about it though you have to you have to have fun with it you have to uh enjoy it you know, people make jokes about it and i tell people you know i've heard some cheesy jokes out there but you know i'll tell you probably the number one that i've heard um since college and stuff is that beer do you even drink beer that's like <laughs> the number one question everybody ever asks is uh is, is that question right there uh but, you know, I, I just enjoy it, you know, you have to enjoy it. At the end of the day, it's uh, it's my last name, it's my name I represent, you know, I represent you know, with my family's name and, uh, you know, anytime you know, a person gets distracted, crack a joke about it and, uh, you know, crack a smile, you know, I, I, you just got to have fun with it because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that's just my name and, uh, and uh, you know, thankfully it's easy enough to remember so that that's what I like about it. Yeah,
1: I was going to say, if they remember your name, that's half the battle, right? Well, uh, yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Seth. Best of luck on the trip back to back home to Georgia. Uh, best of luck this off season. Uh, stay stay dry as best you can. And, and thanks so much for joining us. Of course,
2: thanks, Brad.
1: All right, so we're back now with uh, Benjamin Hill for your usual podcast segment. We're going to do things a little bit differently this week. We'll get that to to that towards the end of this segment. But first off, how are you, Ben?
3: I'm doing all right. I mean, honestly, um, you know, last week, uh, last Tuesday, I visited my final ballpark. It was a milestone. I, you know, had a lot of attention, more Twitter mentions than I'd ever have. I'm even getting kind of good at Instagram now. You know, stay tuned on that. Yeah, jury's out. Yeah, yeah. But, uh... You know, then I come home and the season's over, there's no more games, there's nowhere for me to go. I have a lot of work still to do before I consider the season over, but, you know, it's uh, it's been so slow. And these last couple days I've been sitting in the office being like, where am I? where's my attention and accolades and kudos? Where are my kudos? Um, I'll get over it, but, um, you know, in all seriousness, it has been kind of a downer to kind of transition from that high to... Uh, something more approximating normal life so
1: so that's why and spoiler alert we're doing a mailbag here for the second half of the ben's business segment but that's why you wanted a mailbag, just so your mentions were chock full of people
3: yeah but they were even it was a not not the greatest response although we we only had this idea less than an hour before doing this right yeah um so maybe if we do this again you know we'll get some traction underneath it
1: yeah we'll do some uh prep days ahead instead of minutes (laughs) yeah
3: but I think it's a good off-season thing is to throw it out there to the people and I've said this before um, but I'm very appreciative of it that um, people I've who have emailed me or contacted me on Twitter I've met at the ballparks have said it's through this podcast that they really got to know my work so I appreciate everyone listening who feels that way and I appreciate you uh, regardless just for being you
1: yeah, and uh, maybe this is something we'll do in the offseason, maybe once a month, something like that. Every first podcast of the month we'll do a mailbag section. Where, if anybody has any idea for segments they'd like to hear uh, the offseason, whether it's Ben's Biz, Three Strikes, certain interviews, whatever, feel to reach out ahead of time. Uh, we're more than welcome to opening up the show uh, now that you know the offseason is kind of upon us. But first, uh, before we get to the offseason, we do have a story here that's coming out on thursday so when people are listening to this podcast that you did from your trip to colorado springs we talked a lot about that last week Uh, now that you are finished up this was part 158 of 159. Uh, you talked to somebody named rye henninger who used to be the senior vice president of marketing and promotions with the colorado springs site sky socks Uh, about 12 years ago something or 11 years ago i guess uh, something big happened to Rye, and then you got to speak to him about it afterwards. Kind of take us through the story.
3: Yeah, well, you know, when I was in Colorado Springs, uh, it was the last two games of Colorado Springs Sky Sox history, and I had an article that appeared this Monday, uh, more of an overview of all that and talking to a lot of people, and Rye was one of them, uh, who I quote in the story because he uh, his time with the franchise goes back to the— previous incarnation of the franchise uh when they played in hawaii the Mm -hmm. hawaii islanders are the team that moved to uh colorado springs in 1988 um so i talked to rye put some of his quotes in the story i did on monday but then i kind of spun off my interview with him to a whole new story uh because his story if you work in minor league baseball you probably have heard it before um but you know he he was a licensed uh i don't i forget the term he used a uh Technician. Licensed pyrotechnician. Uh, there were fireworks at every single ball game, you know, in the national anthem, Sky Sox home runs kind of kind of way. Uh, in addition to the you know, sporadically scheduled, you know, fireworks shows, but they had fireworks every game, and so he was, you know, a licensed pyrotechnician. Did fireworks for every single game. Uh, did it, you know, who knows how many thousands of times over almost a thousand games, and then one day in 2007, uh, due to a, a mishap. Caused by an electrical contractor, uh, a firework blew up in his face, um, caused horrible brain damage. Um, you know, a lot of uh, injuries all over his body. Things, certain things, he'll never recover from. Um, and you know, a, a very tragic and scary story. I mean, he was very close to death in the wake of this. Um, but then there he was in the year 2018. Uh, he had to go on disability after the accident. But you right. know, there he was in 2018 at the Sky Sox's last game. Um, you know, I, I kind of ran into him throughout the game. At least, you know, I would see him on the concourse, and he was just talking and talking, and he knows so many people. And after the game, you know, I spoke with him, and you know, he just told me his story in a very upfront and honest way. And um, I don't want to make light of anything he gave, you know, he's gone through and is going through, um, and just turned into just like big-time inspiration but I think he, he is an inspiring guy to come that close to death and now to still be at the ballpark uh to still be connected with the franchise and to still kind of uh you know as I say in the story radiate gratitude um you know regarding uh what he's been through and uh, it's been a long road and you know I'm sure based on my 15-minute conversation with it I'm just barely scratching the surface but I did want to get a story out there a little bit and uh, tie it into my Colorado Springs coverage. Uh, and that'll be it for Colorado Springs, at least on the, at least on the website, uh, on the blog, there'll be a little bit more. And, uh, yeah, so on the road material continues on.
1: Yeah. And, I uh, just want to give the people, uh, an example of, of, a quote that they can find in this story. And I think kind of speaks to Rye, I you know you spoke to him, I didn't, but just the quotes you have here are big block quotes that come from somebody who likes to tell stories and, and. Is willing to speak on, on their hardships, and you even mentioned in here that he uses humor as a coping mechanism. And I think that comes across here, where he says, "Quote: So they made a new nose out of a rib, and I had extensive brain damage. Frontal lobe was smoked. Matter of fact, it's somewhere behind the scoreboard now, and there are probably crows pecking at the brain jerky." I think that's the first time I ever heard brain jerky. Seriously, I'm being honest. So. Uh, that's yeah. a little bit of a taste of what I'm sure it was like to talk
3: to. I him. started laughing when he said that, and then immediately started apologizing for laughing yeah. because it seemed inappropriate. And he just laughed and said, "Nah, man, like I'm I'm leading you on, you know." Right. The fact that he's calling it brain jerky out of his own yeah. <laughs> frontal lobe. Yeah. It, it, his own volition. Yeah. It's uh, so I never never uh, talked to someone who <laughs> quite <laughs> quite made a reference like that before. That's for sure. Well, the, I, these are the types of stories that I think only you come up with and only you find.
1: Uh, through your 159 and then everywhere else you're going next year so find that story on the site the title is called overcoming tragedy in colorado springs uh and now as promised this, this will be the mailbag section i picked i think four questions uh that people sent in and again we'll try to do this more in the off season so you know if your question didn't get used this time save it for next time or if you didn't see our tweet going out and you know Maybe you weren't on Twitter at 3:30 on a Wednesday. That's fine. Uh, no, it's just, not fine. Stay on fun. Twitter. Yeah. Uh, save it for next time. We'll, we'll try to put out the call a little bit earlier next next month, maybe. Uh, but first one comes from 90 feet to home. That's 90 ft letter to, number two. Excuse me, home on Twitter, and they said you logged nearly 400 in-game promo and entertainment activities at minor league parks which are the most memorable
3: yeah well 90 feet to home based in fresno Longtime supporter thank you for all your support um yeah i don't know if 400 is the number but it is <laughs> it is it is a massive uh number and uh, that is one of my problems with answering all minor league questions is like everything becomes a big blur but um you know for in-game promo and entertainment stuff yes it was this season so it's more front of mind but um In Toledo, the Culligan Chill Challenge of spending an entire inning uh, in an ice tub during the game uh, was, I think, one that made a greater impression on me than just almost anything I've done. um, Going through that process, that mental and physical journey for about 25 minutes uh, during the game, Um, I don't regret it, but it was definitely challenging. Um, So that one definitely jumps out. You know, I also think about running the the Governor's race in Sacramento, where they have, uh, you know, Sacramento being the California. Capitol, right. they have a governor's race with Schwarzenegger and Ronald Reagan and Gray Davis. Um, and I dressed up as Reagan for that game. And you know, it's this gigantic Reagan head that I do the race in. And afterwards, you know, we just walk up the stairs uh, in left field and onto the concourse. And there's all these people like wanting to take pictures and slap five. And it was fun for a little bit, but I started to have like a legitimate panic attack in this head and started to feel like I might pass out. And then I started to wonder how much is mental that I was thinking I was going to pass out and how much is physical. And and um, I've, I've done um, those sort of races very sparingly since in my old age mm-hmm. um, because I am afraid of just yanking off a giant head and traumatizing children everywhere. And, and let's be honest, I need to get in better shape. So off-season goals. There we go. All right, so question two comes from at that baseball guy.
1: Uh, this one's a little bit more specific, but, you know, either it's going to help this person or somebody else out there. Uh, what stadiums near northeast Pennsylvania, a state which you obviously know quite well, are the most important to visit in terms of ballpark structure slash fan experience?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, northeast Pennsylvania, I'm assuming that baseball guy is familiar with um, the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders because that's the most northeastern Pennsylvania <laughs> team. Um, you know, that was actually my first minor league experience, um, going to scranton Wilkesbury Red Barons games as a kid. Um, they were a AAA Phillies affiliate at the time, and I grew up a huge Phillies fan, and so I have great memories of that ballpark. Um, but that said, it's almost an entirely new ballpark now, uh, PNC Fields, uh, after the renovations. But that is obviously a great ballpark to see a game, um, and, and one that you know holds childhood memories for me. Um, I am a huge fan of uh, the Redding Fightin' Phils. And, um, you know, when I get the inevitable, what's your favorite ballpark question, which I answer differently every time, basically. Again, you know, so many to choose from. Uh, Reading, you know, First Energy, I think it was formerly just Reading Municipal Stadium, um, you know, is 60-something years old. And, um, but the team brings such an energy to it and just has a culture built around the whole franchise that really is to me an ideal marriage of all the fun minor league baseball zaniness and anything goes promotional spirit with a community that has deep roots to the parent club the Philadelphia Phillies as well as the baseball history in their era in their area so I am a big fan of that ballpark as well and then of course if you're in reading it's not a very uh, long drive to one one rung up the phillies ladder and see the lehigh valley iron pigs in a in a much uh, larger newer ballpark but again a team that is always making headlines for promotions tons of food options and uh, you can't really go wrong uh, jumping from phillies double a AA to triple a and seeing those two no matter what your rooting int- interests are and i just want to
1: open up this question a little bit and not just do northeast pennsylvania although those are all great options um but one thing that stood out to me in terms of this question was it says, <coughs> in terms of ballpark structure, which, you know, when we talk so much about architecture now, we talk about open concourse and all that kind of stuff. What is the most unique structure you feel like for a ballpark that you've seen?
3: Wow, that's, a, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, interesting just the literal structure of the ballpark. Uh, with newer ballparks, I, I think El Paso, Uh, did a great job with some of that with um, some of the buildings in uh, in the outfield that stand alone is elevated group areas with offering views of the franklin mountains uh, beyond the ballpark and if you're on the other side of the ballpark you can see mexico Uh, i thought there was really interesting architecture in that ballpark Um, and then you know just sometimes on the very low level of minor league baseball you just see interesting structures almost in the sense of a lack of a structure and mm-hmm. that the facilities are so small and you know somewhere like bristol i often go back to bristol in my thoughts because it's one of the most down-home uh, environments you'll find it's essentially like an american legion field with um you know almost all bleacher seating and um you know people who just bring their uh, lawn chairs and set them up on the grass behind home plate and down the third baseline. And so, I mean, there is somewhat of a structure for the facility, but it's more like a field with just the requisite amount of seating around it to qualify as a minor league ballpark. And I love that sort of thing as well.
1: All right. And uh, this one is probably one that comes up a lot, but I don't know if we've ever talked about it for you personally. Uh, This one comes from at the Ken Childs. Uh, Of the foods you couldn't have at all the minor league ballparks and can't have gluten uh celiac celiac.
3: disease right
1: which looked most slash least appetizing so gluten is something you used to have uh, before you discovered
3: yeah i'm I'm not an inherently picky eater so i used to eat literally anything at a ballpark if they sold it i ate it um and ken childs you know he was my uh, designated eater in durham a few years ago at the durham bulls game and i remember him eating some appetizing food some large hot dogs and i believe a cheesesteak and things like that um in terms of most appetizing there's definitely things that i look at and i'm just like ah i'd like that um you know for in a lot of cases it's just uh, wishing for a gluten-free bun and because you know hot dogs and toppings and that kind of thing are mostly gluten-free um (coughs) excuse me where's the cough button okay there's the cough button and uh you know, I do go back to El Paso a little bit. They had those Juarez street dogs that were just these, you know, um, Mexican street vendor style hot dogs wrapped in bacon. And I guess I could have eaten those just, like, right <laughs> off the grill, but, like, that was just, like, a phenomenal... Yeah, phenomenal. Right your hand. Like, how are you going to do that? Yeah, and, and, and certainly, you know, especially with the rise in um, teams celebrating regional foods, um, you know, I always wish I could just really dive into that, which is why I enjoyed going to Aberdeen and having steamed crabs, which are gluten-free. But, um... You know, I wish I could try like a Runza because I never had that. Uh, you know, an yeah. Omaha specialty. Um, you know, I wish I got some lobster rolls. You know, in Portland or Connecticut Tigers did that this year. Um, that sort of thing. It's, it's often missing out on the regional things I miss the most because I feel food, um, food items are very tied into a sense of place, and then to not be able to um, experience that myself, I always feel a little bit on the on the outside uh, looking in. Um, you know, you also said least appetizing. And you know what? I've had Rocky Mountain Oysters before, which are, you know, deep-fried cattle testicles. Um, And, uh, you know, they're not awful, but they're not gluten-free either. Um, But in Colorado Springs uh, last week, you know, they debuted a Rocky Mountain Oyster Burger because um, when they go to the Pioneer League next year, uh, Rocky Mountain Oysters is actually one of their... uh, yeah, you know p- potential team names so i'm not gonna you know go with an easy answer and be like ooh, that's disgusting but at the same time i wasn't looking at a burger topped with rocky mountain oysters and being like ah, i wish i g- i wish <laughs> i could eat. missed on that yeah one. i wish i could do it you know <laughs> so um that one kind of does stand out a little bit as least appetizing and beyond that you know Ballpark food is ballpark food. There's very little that's totally unappetizing. Most of the time, it's just when it's bad, it's more just mediocre. You know, it's just a, not very creative or the bun is a little stale or something like that. But I can't remember any instances at a ballpark when I was just like, ugh, like, so glad I'm not eating that, which is, is a good thing. All right, so we'll do two more. Uh, this last one
1: actually came in while we were recording, so it's almost like a live Q&A at this point. Uh, it comes from Joe Mock or at Baseball Park's on twitter which i feel like is a very good twitter handle to have uh in visiting every park which ones were the most difficult to work into your travels for me it was vancouver and grand junction because they weren't really on the way to some somewhere else uh so obviously grand Grand junction was number
3: 159
1: yeah Uh, so trying to fit that in was was pretty tough but outside of maybe these two vancouver and grand junction what are or what were pretty tough to try to get into an itinerary.
3: Yeah, well, Joe Mock is a uh, you know big time baseball travel traveler and, and writes uh, really good in depth reviews of new stadiums every year. You know he's been everywhere, so he, he gets he gets how difficult that can be. Um, and Grand Junction and Vancouver, I think, are two that would jump to my mind because they are in areas that are not you know it's not a concentrated area like the Carolinas or the Northeast or this or that. Um, I, I would say the Texas league uh, as a whole is going to be pretty tough because you're just, um, you know, going from place to place, but with three, four hours off often, three, four, five hours in between stops. I remember I did a trip you know, starting in Albuquerque and then going to El, Pas- El Paso, and then from there hitting, um, you know, some of the tri- uh, Texas league environments like Midland and Corpus Christi and what have you, and uh, that is a league that's tough to do in a concentrated way, and I think you find less – you know uh you know weekenders and uh you know people who don't necessarily have the time or resources to to do it, it, it it's tough in texas because it's, it's it's you know everything's big in texas and that very much includes uh, the right. space between ballparks for sure
1: yeah and that's probably gonna affect you next year if you end up going to amarillo right
3: yeah um, but i haven't been to texas i believe that was the 2014 season so i haven't been there Uh, coming up next year it'll be it'll have been five years so I'm looking forward to Amarillo as an excuse to get back down to Texas and and it will be a lot of long drives I mean a question that no one asked but I'll answer is um You know, places I've come closest to running out of gas, and that was (laughs) definitely in Texas. I was leaving Midland and had about a quarter tank, and I was, like, just kind of stressed the way I always am. And I'm like, I just want to get—you know, you just want to get on the road sometimes. Right. But then all of a sudden, I'm just in this nowheresville, just nothing to be seen except oil refineries. And I literally, when I was just getting to the point of thinking, like, I'm going to be stranded on the road— I got to a gas station in, like, a literal ghost town that wasn't even staffed, but it took a credit card, and I was just like, did I just envision, did I just imagine this? Yeah, I was, most people
1: see lemonade stands in uh, in the desert, you see a gas station there. Yeah,
3: but it worked, it filled up my car and I got going. That and uh, Mississippi, uh, between Biloxi and Pearl, you know, outside of Jackson, uh, where the uh, Mississippi Braves play, I also had a, a gas scare there, it was a Sunday, and it's just rural Mississippi, and it just kept going and in that time I found a place that seemed like I miraged it or I dreamed it up as well You we can uh, use mirage as a word, I miraged, yeah. yeah. I, mir- I just miraged it right out it was like a general store that seemed like it had been built and it was like from 1940 where you'd walk in and get some like pickled you know, pig's feet on the counter and uh, my god I'm very grateful for those two gas stations and one in Texas and one in Mississippi
1: alright so we'll end on
3: this note And what podcast would we be
1: with a mailbag if we didn't have this question in some form uh, this comes from greg prescott or at prescott underscore greg on twitter uh isn't a hot dog really just a sandwich question mark exclamation point question mark and what's the strangest topping on a hot dog you've ever seen
3: uh, well greg you know i communicate with him on twitter as well and he does a lot of his own ballpark travels and has a blog um, of his own so i appreciate that question um well i appreciate greg asking the question i do feel like the hot dog is the hot dog a sandwich thing? Has it's just played out. We don't need to do that. Has I, I, I just have nothing new to add to that. <laughs> and, uh, and I always just, for the record, fell on the part of, no, it's not a hot sandwich. It's a hot dog. I, I'm in agreement here, so we don't need to have a yeah, whole big thing. We don't have to go back and forth with the hot takes, the hot dog takes. Um, the strangest topping on a hot dog I've seen, I feel like I should have so many answers for that at the ready. And, uh, you know, when I was saw Greg S's question, I didn't see it with my own eyes. I last went to Erie in 2014, um, so this was before they did this. But they had the um, candy hot dog that was a oh, topped with nerds, and it had a um, yeah, nerds candy topped with <laughs> nerds candy, and uh, had a cotton candy uh, bun. I mean, wow. so that's the strangest that I've ever seen, you know, on the internet. But I just saw it on the internet, like everyone else. I didn't see it in real life, and I'm having trouble thinking one off the top of my head that's just like a truly, truly strange hot dog. I've seen so many overloaded hot dogs, but you know what? I'll get back to you. Uh, you know, I'll go through my archives and, and try to yeah. come up with a better one, but in terms of all of minor league baseball, whether or not I've been there or not, uh, I think it's pretty safe to say Erie with the uh, cotton candy dog and Nerds is, is way up there.
1: Well, what about if we put it this way then? Assuming it's a gluten-free bun or maybe no bun, what do you put on your hot dog? Because I have friends from Chicago who have 15 different toppings they put on it uh i know some people who swear there's no there's no mustard no ketchup uh everything in between what is your go-to hot dog order
3: well i really do like chicago dogs um and you don't really get those in new york city obviously um you know for me i'm pretty basic but maybe a little ketchup but mustard gets uh, the primary condiment uh is the to me the dominant condiment topping and uh, i do like um you know from the vendors you know sauerkraut and the uh the onions mm. you know but i you know why not load it up you know it's not that much food so why not uh, do a lot and i like i like i'd rather have uh, you know brown spicy brown mustard than just the frenchs but i'll, I'll take See, what i can got. get but <clears throat> but for me yeah just stick with mustard and sauerkraut if it's around and throw some onions on it if you got that and keep it relatively simple but at the same time load it up because hey it's your meal enjoy yep. it
1: yeah a hot dog is just a vessel for whatever else you want to put in it so you might as well take advantage all right so that's our first mailbag ben's biz segment we hope to do more of these uh, as the off season rolls along like i said so start thinking up some questions look on twitter when we put out the uh, the ben signal as it were uh and yeah thank you for joining us ben we'll talk to you next week
3: Hey, thank you, Sam. And uh, please get in touch with me on Twitter at Ben's Biz. Send me an email, benjamin.hill at mlb.com. As I said, I'm kind of struggling in the wake of uh, my travels ending and need all the attention I can get. So I don't feel lonely and irrelevant now that I'm back home. Uh, Thanks. Thanks a lot. And (laughs) and, um, Sam, you're sitting to my right.
0: Final segment of this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com, MILB.tv, rounding out for 2018. But we got a big one coming up next week. Sam.
1: Yeah, so the literally the last game on the Meyer Lee calendar every year is the Triple A Baseball National Championship. This year will be held in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, that'll be next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern. That's September 18th. That is available on Mill TV. That is a chance in which you can say goodbye to the minor league season. I wish I could tell you who's going to be in it. Don't know right now uh, because the IL and the PCL have not figured out uh, their postseasons yet. uh, Or at least, you know, they have not crowned champion as things stand as of recording this, uh, Scranton wilkes has a one zero series lead over Durham in the international league and Memphis holds a 1-0 lead over Fresno in the Pacific coast league. Uh, as I've said in the past, I think it would be pretty cool if Durham and Memphis meet up again. Uh, last year they played in Scranton wilkes this year, they would be meeting up in Columbus. I think that would be really neat that aside. Uh, you'll want to watch this game regardless. Uh, Teams really do take it seriously. It is a glorified exhibition, at, on one sense. Everybody who shows up already feels like a champion. It's not necessarily like the World Series, where it's like, yeah, you're the National League champion, but you have to beat the A.L. team for it to really count. Uh, this is both both teams have won their respective leagues. Uh, it's just kind of a fun way to end the year. Uh, always a fun game, but they do take it seriously. You know, I remember Brent Honeywell coming out of the bullpen last year for Durham uh, as Durham was trying to get that win, and they eventually did. Um, so we'll see what other stops teams pull out uh, next week, but it'll be one of Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, and Durham facing one of Fresno and Memphis uh, next Tuesday. You'll be able to watch that. If you don't have MILD TV, uh, and I hope that you do if you've been listening all season long to us, uh, but if you don't, the game will also be on NBC Sports.
0: So there. You can so tune in wherever you get that, and at milb.tv for the final game of the minor league baseball 2018 season. As insane as that is, and uh, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast. We will be back to wrap up the postseason and get you set for uh, a look ahead at the Arizona Fall League uh, 2018 offseason. And uh, can't believe we're already there, but we are. He's Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Mom. We'll talk to you then.